This week on Political Research Digest, do divided governments limit lawmaking and bring budget impasse? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. We're heading into divided government in Washington after an unproductive, unified session. Will a Democratic House bring even less productivity and more government shutdowns? Today, we use the history of Congress and U.S. state governments for an updated look at what party divisions between the legislative and executive branches bring us in terms of policy output. I talked to Patricia Kirkland of Princeton University about her new quarterly journal of political science article with Justin Phillips, Is Divided Government a Cause of Legislative Delay? They find that divided government at the state level increases the chance of budget delays that can lead to shutdowns. But she says some states are perennially late, and others face more disastrous outcomes and get their work done. I also talked to Benjamin Schneer of Harvard University about his new social science history article, with Stephen Ansel Hare and Maxwell Palmer, Divided Government and Significant Legislation, A History of Congress from 1789 to 2010. They find that divided government does reduce the number of major landmark laws passed by Congress, but only by a few. He says they also uncovered big differences across time and presidencies. When one party controls the presidency or governor's office and does not fully control the legislature, we call it divided government. And the conventional wisdom, with some confirmation by both Kirkland and Schneer, is that it won't be good for governance. The, the conventional wisdom is certainly that divided government can create legislative delays or slow down the lawmaking process. You know, the idea obviously is that when different parties control different branches, it's harder for lawmakers to agree on new legislation. That said, you know, some of the work that scholars in political science have done over the years has, has you know, sort of challenged this notion and looked at maybe some other factors that, that might be more important in uh, legislative performance. While Kirkland looked at the states, Schneer assessed the conventional wisdom over the full span of history. The conventional wisdom is definitely that divided government would lead to less legislative productivity. That certainly seems to be the, what, what you would see in the media. And a lot of political scientists actually, I think, agree with that as well. I think that in some sense, our paper is confirming that conventional wisdom, but Extending, but but just using as the context of a, a much broader span of history, since we're going back to the first Congress, a lot of the work on this question has been post-World War II. And then, but at the same time, what I would say is that while we do find this effect on the margin, in some sense, the message of our paper is that the other side is in some sense right too, in that it doesn't seem like divided control of government is a, a really particularly important predictor in explaining the variation that we see in legislative productivity. There are a lot of other more important things. And so I would say that the, the, while we, we do find support for this finding that uh, divided government matters, but part of the paper is uh, pretty sympathetic to the other side of the argument. Kirkland's main finding is that divided government leads to budget delays, but that can be mitigated with consequences. My co-author, Justin Phillips, and I set out to try and gain a better understanding of the link between divided government and legislative performance. And so to do this, we focused on state budgets. So in the U.S., states need to pass a new budget every year or every other year, uh, depending on the state. 
And when a state experiences divided government, as opposed to when the same party controls the legislature and the governor's office, we find that lawmakers are more likely to miss the deadline to pass a state budget before the start of the new fiscal year. And one of the things that's important about this is if they if lawmakers fail to pass the budget in time, there could be negative consequences. Some of them aren't too terrible. Uh, maybe some small limitations in services or some short furloughs. Uh, but in some cases, they can be sort of major furloughs of state workers, significant limitations in public services. And in some states, if lawmakers don't pass a budget before the new fiscal year starts, state government actually shuts down. And so we find that when, when government is divided it's more likely that there's going to be a delay and a late budget. And these findings are sort of consistent with the notion that divided government slows down legislation and maybe even contributes to gridlock. However, I think one of the most interesting things about this paper is that we also find that when there are rules in place or institutions that make missing the deadline very costly for lawmakers, uh, divided government doesn't seem to have much of an effect on the timing of budget adoption at all. So we think that this is because if, for example, a state government will shut down if the budget's late, we know that voters really don't like that. And so we think that lawmakers are probably concerned that voters might punish them at the polls in the next election. So in states that have uh, government shutdown rules, a late budget is actually no more likely to occur under divided government or when there's unified government. Schneer similarly found that divided government matters, but is by no means the most important factor. So we gathered data on significant legislation that was passed from uh, the first Congress onwards, so 1789 onwards, and we were able to answer those questions. Um, and so first what we found was that divided government was associated with about three fewer acts per Congress as compared to unified government. It didn't, interestingly enough, seem to have a big effect on just total legislation overall. And if you break out the results by time period, it looked like before 1900, it amounted, divided government seemed to lead to about one fewer significant act per Congress, and then post-1900 is about four acts per Congress fewer. So the effects seem to be larger uh, more recently. So that's the effect that we find on the margin. Uh, the, other th the other thing that we look at, though, is how good of a job does party control of government do in explaining variation in legislative productivity overall? And the answer there is it doesn't seem to do a great job. There are other things that seem to be much more important. I mean, there are just big time trends overall that aren't explained by party control of government. The pres who the president is seems to matter, seems to explain more of the variation. So that while, while we do think that there is this change on the margin, going from divided to unified government or unified to divided government, we don't think that, it is that, that divided government is necessarily a great explanation to sort of explain the big changes in legislative productivity that we see over time. The question has a long history in political science, stimulated by David Mayhew's famous claim that divided government does not impede important lawmaking. So even if we go back before Mayhew, and you know, there's this famous quote by V.O. Key where he said that common partisan control of the executive and legislature does not assure energetic government, but division of party control precludes it. Um, and so, you know, even before Mayhew, there was this notion that that you know separation of powers was was made it really difficult to make new laws or change policy, and that 
you know, parties could act as the, the bridge between branches to get things done. And, you know, one of the things, you know, May, David Mayhew, of course, in Divided We Govern, has the first sort of quantitative and, and systematic study of divided government. And, and he points out that a lot of the earlier scholars are writing at a time where the norm is unified government. You know, he undertakes this sort of systematic analysis. And he concludes that divided government doesn't seem to matter very much at all, at least for the passage of landmark legislation. And then, of course, this, you know, seminal work spawns a slew of studies that look at the link between divided government and legislative productivity in particular. And I guess if I were to sort of summarize that work, I would I would say that what comes out of it is some, some consensus, although not unanimous, that divided government almost certainly shapes legislative performance. But there are other factors, you know, it might be polarization, it might be the importance of the legislation involved that actually might condition its effects. David Mayhew wrote this famous book, Divided We Govern, where somewhat surprisingly, he finds that uh, divided government doesn't necessarily seem to reduce uh, legislative productivity. And that spawned a ton of research since then um, with people responding to that claim and, and trying to approach it from a different angle. And yeah, so one interesting aspect uh, or, or one notable aspect of that work is that the time period is 1946 onwards. I, I think about 1991 or 1990. And so kernel of our idea was to try and do what David Mayhew had done in, in terms of assembling a data set of um, significant legislation, but just extend it backwards. And, and so, yeah, I think that um, there, there's a number of reasons why we're finding something slightly different from him. They, you know, so first of all, we try to channel the sort of a, a approach the data gathering in the same using the same principles that he used, but we uh, show in the paper it, it's not there. Even when we sort of look and compare our data set versus his for the same years, it's not always exactly the same. But and then more importantly, we're going back further. Kirkland's work was stimulated by observing the federal level, where the consequences of impasse clearly mattered. We sort of landed on this this uh, interesting regularity, which was in certain instances, Congress could pass something. So, for example, they couldn't really pass the regular appropriations bills that were part of that are typically associated with the federal budget. But faced with a shutdown, they could get out of it. Or also when they needed to raise the debt ceiling because we were facing, you know, tremendous tremendously uncertain consequences of a failure to raise the debt ceiling. And there was a general agreement that it would be we didn't know what would happen, but it would be really, really, really bad. And they could sort of always get together at the last minute and, and piece an agreement together. And Schneer's work was stimulated by a class assignment on congressional history. The origin for this paper was actually that Max and I were uh, teaching assistants for uh, Steve in a course on Congress that he was teaching. And one of the main projects for the course was that each student or sometimes a couple students, were assigned to become experts on the history of Congress for a particular decade. And so as part of that process, uh, one of the things they did was gather or begin to gather data on significant legislation passed in this, uh, in their decade. And, and so that actually was sort of the early beginnings that first it might be possible to gather this data. And that also served as sort of a template that we continued to build on uh, when we pursued this paper more. So it ended up being the case that a lot more work had to go into sort of filling out the database of significant legislation over time. But the yeah, the origins of this paper were, were really in this course. 
Schneer looked at the traditional outcome, significant legislation, but counting major laws over time is difficult. We really were trying to follow sort of the spirit of what Mayhew had done in his initial work, um, but applying it to a longer stretch of time. Um, so I think you can think of significant legislation in terms of its contemporaneous significance. Do, do people at the time think that it's significant? And also in terms of retrospective significance. And so David Mayhew and his book is, is doing that. He's looking at um, New York Times sort of end of year legislative uh, summaries to get at the contemporary contemporary uh, significance, and then looking at secondary literature uh, to sort of assess the retrospective significance. We, yeah, without going into too many details, we didn't use those exact same sources, but tried to basically follow a similar approach. We used the CQ Almanac. So we just used sort of a variety of secondary sources and also sources trying to get at the contemporary accounts of what was significant. But ultimately, I, I would stress that in Mayhew's approach and in our approach, there are it is in some sense arbitrary what the, ultimately what the researcher uh, decides. Kirkland found budget delays as a clear measure of success and failure in the states. One of the actually one of the sort of interesting things about this measure is there's variation in how bad it is to have a late budget. Budget, you know, interestingly enough, on on average, there's about about nineteen percent of state budgets over the time period that we considered, which was nineteen sixty eight uh, to twenty ten. About nineteen percent of state budgets are late, but there's a lot of variation across states in how frequently the budget's late. Uh, some states, like Wisconsin and New York, for example, very often have late budgets. Uh, other states, it it rarely happens. And again, this variation in how bad it is was also important to how we wanted to think about what might condition the effects of divided government. But I think one of the things that was really important to us, because we decided to sort of take a narrow approach with this project, because we wanted to try and isolate a, what we could plausibly claim to be a causal effect of divided government. And so this focus on budget delays was also helpful methodologically, because one of the biggest challenges with, with some of the uh, existing empirical uh, studies of divided government is how you measure legislative performance or the production of legislation. Because, you know, one way, one option is to sort of count the number of laws that are passed. But, you know, there's a component of that missing because if the number is low, it might be because there's gridlock or it might also be that there's just not a lot of demand for legislation. And, you know, there are lots of sophisticated ways in which scholars have tried to sort of incorporate both supply and demand. But this is a really sort of thorny issue. And a lot of the sort of differences across studies of divided government actually surround this this measurement question. And so one thing that is really helpful about this budget delay measure is that the supply and the demand are clear. Uh, there's a demand for one state budget a year or one state budget every other year, and it's clear when it's passed and, and sort of that it's passed. She was able to get a causal estimate of the effect of divided government by comparing states that were just on the edge of unified versus divided government. But we don't want to compare just cases of unified and divided government, because we might be worried that there are factors that cause divided government, meaning there are factors that determine whether or not a state's voters elect 
a unified or divided government. And some of those factors could also influence budget timing, like the timing of budget adoption or how easy it is for lawmakers to adopt a budget or how difficult and prolonged the negotiations might be. However, we want to sort of think about that piece of it. Basically, this means we're worried about some factors that cause states to sort of select into divided government that are related to whether or not the budget is passed on time. So it's an endogeneity concern. With the regression discontinuity design, we focus on state years that are about as likely to experience divided or unified government, meaning uh, the chances of experiencing divided government were about 50-50. Among these states, we have sort of a sample of state years where those all those potential confounders that we might worry about are, in theory, similar for both states that have unified and divided government. But what's different about them is whether or not they actually experience divided government. That was not easy because they needed a regression discontinuity measure that worked for separate elections for the state houses, state senates, and gubernatorial elections. We have a lot of elections to different institutions at different times. So the way that we handle this is we use a series of simulations And what we want to determine from the simulations is the smallest partisan vote shock that would have produced a different outcome in terms of divided or unified government. And sort of just to clarify, I mean, how much of the vote would have to shift from one party to another for the opposite outcome to sort of have occurred? So if we get a state that has an election, and let's say it's an on-term election, so we have a governor, the state senate and the state legis- and the state general assembly are all having elections they all come they all all the elections take place party control is in the hands of republicans the question then is how what share of the vote at the state level would have had to shift from the republican party to the democratic party to get divided government instead of unified government the way that we sort of figure this out is is with simulations and we simulate every legislative and gubernatorial election in each state. And then we look at, in each simulation, we shift the vote share from one party to another and we say, what was the outcome? And then we compare that to the actual outcome. And we determine uh, two things. One, we look at the, we, we, we learn something about the probability of that a state will experience divided government, but we also learn uh, what we t- what we talk about as the electoral or vote share distance to divided government. And again, that's the smallest uh, vote share that would have to shift from one party to the other to get divided government instead of unified or unified instead of divided government. But Kirkland and Phillips also found that polarization and the consequences of budget impasses matter for delays alongside divided government. The idea that the effects of divided government vary with the political context. In particular, in our instance, we see that the effect of divided government is mitigated by certain institutions that make it really costly for lawmakers if there's a delay. We also find some evidence that higher levels of polarization actually make it more likely for divided government to create legislative delay, which is, I think, very consistent with much of the work, uh, much of the more recent work on divided government at the federal level. And there are big differences across states in how normal it is to have a delay. I don't know if I would necessarily say that something else has to go wrong. And the reason I I say that is because in some states, late budgets are the norm, regardless of whether government is divided. So it, it seems like some of these other factors, 
like the level of polarization and institutions in particular really matter. Uh, They really do have an effect on or really, really do condition the effect of divided government. And I think that's sort of a key takeaway of our work here. Kirkland says divided government also may increase deficits or affect lawmaking. We had perfect data. I think we would like to have that perfect measure of legislative performance to look at the relationship between divided government and legislative productivity. But that said, there are lots of ideas of effects of divided government. And for example, we have a a working paper that develops and refines this method a little bit more. And we have an application to um, budget deficits because there is some existing scholarship that predicts that there will be larger budget deficits uh, under divided government. Having only one government to look at, Schneer looked at its productivity over centuries. It's also the case that looking over time across Congresses, you could make the case that um, just the way Congress operates has changed. And so what you observe in one Congress is not directly comparable to in another. Uh, An example of this is that in the early Congresses, a lot of things were done sort of on an ad hoc basis. There was no budget, no formal budget process. And so, to, you know, if you were just to count up legislation, there are a lot more individual units, whereas when the process is sort of rationalized, it, it becomes, you know, everything gets put together under one heading. Right. So, yeah, that, so that's a, a problem. I, I don't know that we had a I don't know that we have a a way of totally confronting that head on other than just to try to be consistent over time in, in terms of making the same sorts of judgments from, uh, and applying them in one time period to the next. But they found major time period differences irrespective of divided government. We observe probably the highest level of productivity, at least according to our measure, in the period from around 1927 to about 1966. So the New Deal through sort of the Great Society years. But then at the same time, you know, that's the raw number of legislation. If you look at legislation, at significant legislation as a percentage of total legislation, the, the first two Congresses are huge outliers, which are, is not really surprising. And it's all been downhill since the 1960s in terms of congressional productivity. This coincides with the rise of the conservative coalition between some Southern Democrats and Republicans, and generally speaking, sort of the ascendancy of the Democratic Party nationally. And as that starts to unravel after the Civil Rights Act, after the Voting Rights Act, we also begin to see legislative productivity uh, decline. And it's continued to go down ever since, according to our measures. And so speaking sort of more generally, it's definitely the case that both in terms of total legislation and significant legislation, the context and the time period matter a lot. Schneer, Ansela Beher, and Palmer look at both immediate changes from unified to divided government and longer differences over time. Most of the effects were immediate. So if the question is, does the effect seem to be immediate? It does seem to be immediate. I mean, you know, so there were some other things that are related to this that we looked at. So one theory is that if there's been, for example, a long period of divided government, maybe the first Congress where there's unified government, you'd expect to see a big uptick. Uh, We didn't actually really see big evidence in favor of that. Though intuitively, you could understand why that might be the case. So our results generally seem to show that um, there's not a huge lag. It's not like this is a la- there's a process where it's lagged. It can be a bit memoryless, right? The, the context can change and swing back and forth from one Congress to the next. But in each 
at every Congress, there are new members, often there are new members. And, and in any case, in order to be reelected, members feel like they need to uh, produce, or if, if you're in the minority, maybe stop the other side from producing. And so it's not a shock to me that you wouldn't see big lags in, in this process. They assessed some alternative explanations, finding it was not due to supermajorities. So we look, for example, at the effect of having supermajorities, the effect of centralization. Unfortunately, we don't really actually, you know, we don't really look at polarization per se, although especially now that's something we probably should have done. The reason we're concerned with those explanations is, well, take take the example of a super of supermajorities. You might think that observing this change in legislative productivity going from divided to unified government, maybe you're not really observing a difference between divided and unified government. It's really a change of when there's a supermajority and when there and versus all the other times. And so by controlling for when there's a supermajority, you, you can assess if the, the process that we think is working, uh, that is that you can basically assess is divided government on its own a necessary condition for the decrease in legislative productivity. And just to be clear, the reason the reason that we're interested in supermajorities at all is, for example, in the Senate, you might be worried about the uh, the ability of the minority party to filibuster, and that could block legislation, and and therefore, even under unified government, perhaps you wouldn't observe high levels of legislative productivity. When we try to control for whether or not a party has a supermajority, we do find that that makes a difference, but it's in some sense over and above the effects that we observe for unified versus divided government. So um, when we look at that, the conclusion that we make is that this does seem to matter a bit, but it's still the case that switching from unified to divided or divided to unified government on its own is a sufficient condition to observe these changes in legislative productivity. Schneer says the last Congress continued the downward trend. Yeah, I do think that by most measures, the current Congress, uh, which is under unified Republican partisan control, uh, would be considered not particularly productive. I do think that this does seem to be part of sort of a general downward trend, irrespective of whether or not it's divided or unified government. I couldn't really say if if it is accelerating or not. And I don't necessarily think it's specific to Republicans. And this isn't something we really take up too much in the paper, but I think when you look at polarization at the elite levels you know, within Congress, within sort of national politics as a whole, that has to be a part of it. And as in history, he says presidents do matter and Trump is not helping. We do find that if you include president fixed effects, that does better job in some sense than just looking at unified versus divided control in terms of explaining overall variation. I think that it's hard to sort of disentangle how much of that is a period effects versus like individual um, legislative effectiveness of a of a president. My my guess would be it's some of both, and and so. You know, if, if we're willing to take that and run with that, I think, yes, that um, and, and just anecdotally, I think from observing this term of Congress it does seem clear that the president has a huge role to play in, in setting the agenda and um, in sort of defining the scope of the debates that are going on. Um, you know, right now, as we're speaking, 
uh, unified Republican Congress may be heading towards a legislative shutdown. That's most mostly, I think, due to who the president is. And so we shouldn't expect things to get better in the next Congress. Barring some sort of unforeseen reversal of fortune, we can probably expect the next Congress to be less productive even than this one. In some sense, I think the lesson of our paper is that there may be multiple reasons why we would expect that. So first, just because on average, moving from unified to divided government, we would expect on the margin a decrease in the number of significant acts of Congress passed. But then second, because you know, second, as we show, if you're able to look at changes in legislative productivity over the sort of the broad span of history, right now we're in the midst of a pretty stark decline. And so I would say not so. So I guess moving toward to the next Congress, we would expect decreases, you know, a less productive Congress on the margin and as part of this continued uh, decline. The number of states with unified government is actually increasing this year. But Kirkland says that may not save us from budget impasse. You know, one of the things that's been notable about state governments in, I don't know, for quite a while now is that as the federal governments really sort of struggled to, struggled with gridlock and, you know, there have been these periods of divided government that that it's been um, less common in the states and they've been sort of producing more policy. I think that that will continue with sort of shifts in, in in party and shift from divided to unified government at the state level. Specifically, though, on this sort of issue surrounding budgets, I'll be curious to see what happens because I think if you had asked me this question before I did the analyses for these papers, for this paper, I would have sort of predicted that everything would go much more smoothly with divided government. Um, but now that I've, I've done them and looked at the data a little bit more carefully, I tend to think that in some states, they're still going to struggle to pass their budgets on time, even if they have unified government. So can policymakers escape their historical circumstances? Schneer thinks that would be an uphill battle. I'm not sure that that there's an optimistic message here for politicians or advocates for particular, you know, for particular causes that want to see important legislation coming out of Congress. Um, You might say that one message of the paper, in fact, is that winning unified control of Congress may result in some policy wins on the margin, which could be really important but that um, you can't necessarily escape the sort of secular trend, in this case, downward secular trend that you're in based on the time period that you're in until something pretty rare happens. But Kirkland has a policy proposal, though it may be unpalatable. She says the worse the outcome for inaction might actually be better for stimulating budgeting and lawmaking. I think this is actually an interesting policy implication. One thing I keep coming back to is my, you know, my home state is Pennsylvania. And this is a state that, that for, for a long time had a, a shutdown rule. And they sort of took the teeth out of that bill some years ago. In the recent past had a an incredibly long budget delay that just went on and on for many, many months. In fact, I I believe they were at the point where they needed to pass the next fiscal year's budget and still didn't have a budget. Um, And so I tend to think that these rules really matter. And so if... If it were the case that policymakers wanted to mitigate the potential for divided government to to create problems in the future, they could create 
these sort of critical deadlines, whether it's a government shutdown for budgeting or whether it's sunset provisions on laws or, or bills that need to be or programs that need to be reauthorized or funded at some point in time in the future or they go away, that, that might be a way of, of forcing them to get together and come to some sort of agreement to move forward in the future. Schneer agrees that looking at the states enables a good look at divided government, but he says we also want to understand the institution of Congress itself. Looking across 50 states and looking at variation across states and partisan control probably allows you to make cleaner and maybe even more well-supported claims about, in this case, divided government actually causing budget delays. Um, and I think also in terms of understanding legislatures in general, I think being able to do that type of work is um, and make those sorts of inferences is very helpful. I would say at the same time, we also want to understand the U.S. Congress in particular and how things have changed in that institution over time. And so I would say that that approach and this approach are pretty complementary in that they're, they're really almost telling, they're telling us slightly different things, but about the same overall question or same overall problem. Kirkland says many of their findings might travel to the federal level in the new divided government. I think that the insights definitely travel fairly well, because, you know, if we just take the insight that the cost to lawmakers of impasse are an important feature here. And we think about some of the instances that have happened in the past where shutdowns have happened or been avoided, or the fact that we have managed to continue to raise the debt ceiling, it seems crucial. And I think some of these insights might also be helpful for understanding budgeting in particular. It's been a long time since since Congress has uh, routinely passed the, the set of normal sort of appropriations bills. And so I think that we ought to expect delays in the future. But there's more research to be done. And Kirkland says looking to the states has the institutional diversity to see what matters for all kinds of outcomes. One of the benefits of, of taking some ideas that are that sort of come from a foundation at the federal level and, and looking at them at the state level is that you have variation in institutions across states that that you just don't have when you look at the federal government. Now, the other thing is that, you know, in the, in, when we look at the federal government and we look at something like legislative productivity, the unit, of analysis te- the unit of analysis tends to be a Congress. And so that that creates a sort of small end problem that we can get around by incorporating data from uh, all 50 states or from almost all states, right? Uh, so that's, you know, a, a general statement of sort of some of the things that are helpful. Um, and I think there is really interesting work going on now that speaks to some of the, these theories or some ideas and theories that were developed thinking about the federal government that are sort of now being tested at the state level. Um, I think some issues surrounding money and finance and lobbying are particularly interesting right now. And it seems like scholars really interested in this right now and doing some really great work on state politics that sort of draws on these theories. And I, I think that the you know important focus is to sort of think about, to account for the differences between uh, the federal government and the states, but also to think about what the politics of this are and what's the same. And so what insights can we take away from states and uh, apply to the way that we think about uh, federal politics? Schneer will also be looking at institutional design, going all the way back to the beginning and up to our present polarized era. The biggest remaining questions are probably about how polarization interacts with divided government. And so I don't have immediate plans to 
I don't think we have immediate plans to tackle that question with this particular data set. I think that for me, at least, this all sort of points to a broader set of questions about how the institutional design or institutional setup of our government, uh, both in terms of electoral and legislative institutions, influences the ability of the government to respond to whatever the challenges are of the day, um, as well as simply being able to respond to whatever uh, constituents want at that point in time. And so for me, at least, that I'm doing more work in that area. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Patricia Kirkland and Benjamin Schneer for joining me. Please check out their articles and then join us next time.